You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott on Sunday, January 10th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Uh, not many people uh, besides my wife know this about me, but I am uh, not a good singer, um, not just in the way that you might think. Uh, not that I don't have a good singing voice, because I do, but as my wife will testify, I don't know the actual words to any song, um, and, and I'm not exaggerating. I, I might get a few words right in any given song, but I don't know the, the, the entire actual words to any song. So unless the words are right in front of me, at some point, I'm just going to start singing whatever comes into my mind, and it is, it is always, always wrong. Um, and so apparently my children have followed suit because my four-year-old daughter for the past week and a half has been singing a song in her room. It is a Minnie Mouse song and it is, it is terribly annoying and it just goes like this. It just says over and over, nothing can stop us now. And, and so I just hear her for a very, very long time just singing close to those words. And so one day this week I pass by her room and I hear Clementine singing in a very different tune from the actual song, but she is singing the words, everything can stop us now, over and over again. And, and my first thought was, okay, she's, she's just not enunciating well. So I went into her room and I asked her, I said, I said, sweetheart, what are, you, what are you singing? And she has a big smile on her face and she throws up her hands and she just goes, everything can stop us now. And I'm like, all right, that's what I thought. So keep, keep going. Um, and she, you know, as much as I realized She's probably just misquoting a song. I kind of had this realization that my four-year-old had just written the perfect anthem for the last 10 months. Uh, Everything can stop us now. It just feels like again and again, thing after thing just gets thrown at us. And as I've talked with many of you, I have heard a consistent and constant refrain. Uh, This past year has been the hardest of my life. This past year has been the worst year of my life. Each person for varied reasons, some personal, some driven by by feeling isolated, some driven by what is going on in the world around us, but again and again just heard this has been the toughest year of my life. And there have been probably no less than 12 million memes that have blamed our suffering and difficulty on the numbers 2020. And so many of us have put great hope that the end of our calendar year will also mean the end of our suffering, because we feel so desperate. We feel like things are out of our control. So we need something to point at and say, I just know, I just have to believe that this is going to end here. And so we have put a lot of hope in the numbers 2021. And then Wednesday comes and we watch the immoral, sinful acts of angry men and women pushing in, breaking into our nation's capital. Someone is waving the Confederate flag. Others are waving flags about Jesus. We see and hear about lives lost. We know that people are grieving and hurting. We are reminded to abhor that which is evil and hold tight to that which is good. But we see the division that just keeps getting deeper and deeper. We see and hear the growing anger that has settled into many of our hearts and minds. And we just start to lose a little bit of hope that 2021 is going to be a good savior. And so 
you may have started to ask, and you, you may have started to ask God or think in your mind, and maybe even said out loud, how long, O oh Lord, how long? We are left questioning, wondering how long this pandemic will rage. How long will injustices continue? How long will this country be divided on racial lines? How long will prejudice and ethnic hatred have a place in our country? How long will unborn babies created in the image of God be referred to as a clump of cells and treated like they don't matter? In our personal lives, we are often left wondering, what if, what if things don't change? What if I don't get the job that I want? What if the sickness that I have keeps going on and the healing doesn't come? What if these relationships stay broken? How long will I be alone? What happens when the storm doesn't settle down and everything doesn't go back to normal? How do we remain hopeful and joyful when, when it seems like really bad things have no end, when it doesn't look like our suffering is going to change? When my wife and I went through about 10 years of infertility and loss, I remember saying to God close to the end, I, I get it. It's, I, I don't know if it's going to change, and I probably deserve it. There's probably something that I've done to deserve this, but she doesn't. And so my request switched from wanting these things just for me to, to selflessly wanting them for someone else. Surely, if my motives for calling out to you, if my motives for crying out for change is for somebody else, then surely things will change. Surely you'll change them then. I just remember thinking, Father, she's the best person I know. How long, oh Lord, does she have to suffer? What happens if this situation doesn't change the way I want it to? How long, oh Lord, how long? Many of you have been asking that this past year. For some, you've asked this for, for years or decades. And too often as Christians, we are so desperate for answers, as all of us are. But instead of grieving and lamenting, we move quickly towards what we believe is the right answer. We try to do what we think a good Christian should do. The right thing, the right thing to do, the right Christian answer is to just trust in God. Don't question Him. No matter what you feel, no matter what is raging around you, just trust in Him. We tell ourselves to say the right thing. Don't let people see that we're hurting as deeply as we are. Don't bring these kinds of questions to God. We are afraid that if we vocalize them, if we say them out loud, then, then that means we're not really a Christian. Christians are supposed to have joy in all kinds of trial, so we can't act like these things bring us down. We are meant to have the full and abundant life, so we can't act like our lives aren't full and abundant right now. And so if we say to God, where are you? Why won't you do the thing that I need you to do? Then it means that we don't really believe. If we vocalize the thing that God already knows that we're thinking, God already knows our deepest thoughts, our deepest hearts, motives, and intentions. He knows everything about us. But we think if we say it out loud, then it means we don't really believe. The truth is that we need to grieve, and it is very human to question in the midst of suffering. In the book of Romans chapter 8, we are told that we groan as we wait for God. The whole creation is groaning. 
We, in a, we are in a world that is often confusing and painful. It is often difficult to make sense of the things people do, the way we treat one another. It is difficult when we see someone that, that we believe loves and treasures Christ go through prolonged sickness, pain, or loss. And if we don't allow ourselves to grieve, to cry, to weep, then that pain will easily become bitterness and anger. If we don't cry out to God, if we don't let our hearts be known before God, then our doubts and questions will all too easily move to unbelief. David himself says this in Psalm chapter 32, verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, when I kept it all in, when I didn't cry out, my insides just wasted away because I was groaning all day long. We're going to look at Psalm 13 today. It's a psalm of David, and this psalm helps us see that we aren't meant to stay forever in a place of, of complaint, and God certainly wants us to trust in Him. That is right. Yet God is also very patient and gracious and doesn't just want us to say the words just to say them. He doesn't just want us to say that we trust in God when we really don't. What God wants for his people is to see, believe, and treasure that he is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of all of our praise. And when we grieve and cry out to God, then we are able to see how completely dependent we are on God. There's nothing left of ourselves. We can't turn to ourselves anymore. We, we are completely dependent on him, and, and then we will see how good he truly has been to us and will be to us. This psalm will help us to learn how we can move from despair to a deep-rooted hope and trust in God. I'm very thankful that God's word not only gives us clear direction to know him and to follow after him, but it also gives us a way to get there in the midst of whatever we're facing. He not only gives us the commands that we're meant to follow, but he gives us the words to express our grief, our sorrow, our struggle, our questions, and that is most clearly seen in the Psalms of Lament. Lament in the Bible is a cry to God in the midst of suffering that leads us to greater trust in him. We need to be able to express our grief and sorrow. It is right to weep over loss, to grieve over injustice and sin. And God uses lament as a way to move us, as one pastor put it, from pain to praise. Mark Rogop, a pastor in Indianapolis, has written a wonderful book entitled Weep With Me to help us understand the purpose of lament and the role it should play in the lives of believers and the life of the church. <laughs> he talks about Psalm 13 and he says this, while the psalmist knows that God is in control, there are times when it feels like he's not. When it seems that injustice rules the day, lament invites us to talk to God about it. Instead of stuffing our struggles, lament allows us to verbalize the tension. The goal of lament is to commit yourself to hoping in God, believing his promises, and a godly response to pain, suffering, and injustice. God, through David in Psalm 13, puts words to our thoughts and our feelings in our suffering, in our ongoing suffering. We don't know specifically in this psalm what happened to David to, to cause him to write these words. We don't know what was going on around him. 
We're not told specifically, and I think that is a good thing. If we've been told specifically, often in our grief and in our pain, if somebody can't relate to it directly, we discount what they say. You don't know exactly what I'm going through. It's easy to say that. And so I think if we knew what he was going through, many of us would look at it and say, that's not what I experienced. He doesn't know exactly what I experienced. The the Psalms of Lament often follow a similar path. They have similar elements, and we see that here. They start with making our complaint to God, but then in lament, we still believe that it is God who can change things. We're still going to God, and so we move from complaint to making our request of God, and then the psalmist moves to the goal of lament, the hope of lament, that we would more fully trust in God. And so David starts by making his complaint in verses 1 and 2. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In these first two verses, David asks God four times, how long? In verse one, David feels abandoned by God. He feels that God doesn't care about him or his situation. That the God of the universe just forgot about him. We are in a world filled with evil sin and suffering, and that often leads us to question, is God there? Is he going to answer? Is he going to do something? We believe that he is in control, that he has the ability. We believe that he is good, that he is loving. We believe these things. We want to believe these things. And so we often don't know how to reconcile that God is good and can be trusted while at the same time seeing the suffering and evil that are happening all around us. How do we reconcile those things? How, does it, how do we reconcile that it seems like he just isn't moving right now, that he isn't doing anything about it? If God sees all things and knows every hair on my head, then why do I feel like you've forgotten me, God? If God created all things and sustained all things, then then why does it feel like you're intentionally hiding right now from us? I know no one likes uh, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Um, I, I, I didn't think it was that bad, uh, and everyone else did, so apparently I'm wrong. Um, but in that movie, Rey thinks that there is only one place that she can turn, that, that, that evil is about to overwhelm the universe. She appears to be the only Jedi left, and she goes to find Luke Skywalker. In her mind, literally the only person in the universe that can help her. And when she gets to him, he is disgruntled, disinterested, and refuses to help her. She is left feeling like evil is going to win. Evil is going to take over. She had one place to turn, and she is left feeling disappointed. She had one place to turn to find help, to find guidance, and now she has nowhere. This is how we kind of see David in this psalm. David believes that God is the only one he can turn to, but it feels like God won't even show his face right now. We often feel let down or abandoned by the people that we trust most in this world, and that is a horrible and difficult place. But how much more to feel let down, forgotten, or abandoned by your final hope, your last hope, by a God that you love and trust. 
Can anything be worse than that? And so David now asks God in verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? David has felt abandoned for God for so long that he has turned to trying to comfort himself. How long do I have to figure out my own way out of this? How long do I have to console my own heart and mind? David is constantly thinking of ways, trying to find ways to bring his suffering to an end, but they all keep failing him. If God isn't going to come, if he isn't going to help, then I'll have to take matters into my own hand. I have to have comfort. And so if I have to find it on my own, I will. I'll figure out a way to bring this to an end. A couple of years ago, our family got a difficult diagnosis for someone close. It was very ambiguous initially, but it sounded like there was very little hope for anything that wasn't really bad. And I stayed up most of that night, and I searched the internet for everything it was worth, something you should probably never do, but we all do it. And I found about 15 different things that it could be that were better than what I feared it was going to be. And all of them turned out to be wrong. It was something very different and very treatable. And none of those 15 things actually brought any comfort to my mind and heart. It was still racing. I was still overwhelmed with fear and sorrow. When it feels like God isn't listening, isn't going to act, then it is natural to take matters into our own hands, to try and take control from God. I'll figure it out. David here has been doing that for a while, now comes to God, broken, and says, I I can't keep doing this. I can't keep trying to save myself. How long do I have to keep trying to comfort myself? Because it clearly isn't working well. As David says, I'm trying to counsel myself, and yet I have sorrow in my soul all day. Clearly, the counsel isn't going well. This wasn't a momentary pain. This wasn't suffering that had gone by quickly. This was an all day, every day, and it had lasted for a long time. The pain and sorrow never leave me. I don't have a moment's rest from this suffering. Charles Spurgeon, talking about suffering, said a week within prison walls is longer than a month at liberty. We felt this this, this this past year. One week of suffering feels so much longer than a month of carefree living. Our suffering always feels long. will almost always leave us desperate, feeling desperation for it to come to, to an end. will leave us wondering, is this going to end? Will this ever come to an end? Will this ever change or be different? So David then moves from crying out to God to the next stage of lament. He turns to requesting of God because in his desperation, he now knows he doesn't have the answer. He's not going to find the answer. And so he goes to God who he knows, he trusts, can do what he's calling out to do. He's asking God to change something for him and in him. So David says in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David still believes that God is the place that he can turn to. And that is good. He says, God, you are going to have to change something in me. David is expressing here the weight of, 
of the suffering that he is going through. This is so heavy that my eyes are about to close and I don't know if they're ever going to open again if they do. If it keeps going, my eyes are going to fall heavy and they're going to sleep the sleep of death. Many of us have felt the overwhelming pressure and weight of the last 10 months. The past days and weeks, we felt the overwhelming weight of, of suffering, of hurting. You might have felt your heart bend to the point of breaking. Maybe you feel like your suffering has broken you. It's just become too much. The storm waves have swept over you and you don't have any energy left. David has felt that weight. David feels like his enemies are going to come out of this victorious, feeling like they were right, feeling like they were on the right side, and it is weighing him down. David is crying out to God. He is calling out with his last breath here. And it is in this broken place that he begins to take a turn, a turn to remember what he knows to be true, that God is the only one that can save me, that no matter what it looks like, no matter what it seems like, that God is there and I know he can save me. This is Jonah in the belly of the the giant fish. When he cries out, salvation is of the Lord. Of course it is. You're in the belly of a giant fish. There's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to go. Jonah knows if he is going to be saved, it is only because of God And so David now remembers that there is nowhere else he can turn. There is no one else who has the answers. There is no one else who has the life that he needs. And so he says in verse 5 and 6, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good. We need to cry out and be honest. We we can let God know what we're feeling, what you're thinking. But lament isn't the end. Lament should lead us to something. It should lead us to a renewed sense of confidence in God. If we stay only in our questioning and in our doubting, then we miss the purpose of what God has given us in these Psalms, which is to give us a renewed sense of trust in God. As David cries out in these these lament psalms, they always lead him to a place of trusting in God. But if I'm honest, I get to the end of these verses and they feel feel forced to me. It's a a short psalm. It doesn't feel like there's much of a transition. David goes from, how long will you keep ignoring my pain, God? I'm going to die here and my enemies are going to triumph and celebrate over me in my death and then just but I will trust in the Lord. It feels somewhat forced. When I was five and in kindergarten, I got in my first real fight uh, with my best friend. He had said something mean about my mom, and I told him not to, and I pushed him. And, uh, and basically what I remember next is the last 10 minutes of the first Rocky movie, uh, where Rocky and Creed fight for 15 rounds, noses are broken, ribs are broken, blood is everywhere, But in the end, they respect each other and they hug it out. But uh, the truth is that uh, I think I hit him in the arm and he hit me in the nose. And then we got sent to the principal's office. Um, 
And when we were at the principal's office, <clears throat> we were made to apologize to each other. And I think he, he did it well. <clears throat> he said, tell each other we're, you're, you're sorry. And we both kind of said, I'm sorry. And he said, well, tell, tell, tell each other what you're sorry for. Like, what are you apologizing for? And, and then he said, you know, do you forgive each other? And we kind of begrudgingly said, yeah, I forgive you. And he said, well, tell them specifically what do you forgive them for? And he kind of led us step by step through what we needed to say. Begrudgingly and under our breath, we said these things. And that's the initial feeling that you kind of get here in these verses, that David knows what to say. God has given him what to say. And he's kind of begrudgingly and under his breath just saying, I'm going to trust God. The suffering won't stop, and I don't know why God won't do something about it, but I know what I'm supposed to say, and so I'll say it through gritted teeth. As Christians, we too often do this. We know what we're supposed to feel. We know the things that are right to say, but we don't really mean it. God is not looking for us to, under our breath, like a five-year-old, repeat what we're supposed to say, and that's not what David is doing here. It is very clear here in Psalm 13 that we see David struggle, but in his struggle, he is moving closer to God. He is intentionally moving closer to God. He comes to God in prayer, and that time in prayer reminds David of who God is. As he asks God to act on his behalf, David is reminded that God is his salvation, that God is good. The Psalms of Lament always, always move, as we said earlier, from pain to praise, or as Rogat put it in his book, every lament is designed to become this kind of pathway toward hopeful godliness. David isn't saying these last two verses through gritted teeth, but as someone who has seen his enemies prosper, has seen suffering continue on, has seen nations rage around him. But when he turns his heart and attention to God, when he sets his eyes on God, then his understanding changes. His confidence changes. And so David says in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is past tense. David is reminding himself. He is, he is speaking to himself. Remember what God has done. David reminds himself that he has trusted God in the past and God has never failed him before. We must remember and rehearse stories of how God has shown himself faithful in the Bible, faithful in the lives of others, faithful in our own lives. We have trusted in the past and so now we know that we can trust and believe that even in the midst of chaos, even when it looks like evil has won, even when we are faced with day in and day out suffering, God is faithful. God is in control. We can remember how his steadfast love has never failed. Remember all that he has done for us. Remember his son sent into this world on the darkest and most hopeless looking day, the most hopeless looking time. God brought his son to life. He was, he was made alive. He was resurrected and, and given the highest place, was raised up to the highest place and given the highest name in the universe. And out of that, God redeemed and saved all of his people. That's what God does with even the most hopeless looking times. We remember those things and we trust in him. And that trust now gives us the confidence to rejoice, as David says in verse 5. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's, we can tell ourselves 
I know I need to firmly and resolutely trust in God. We can't get here on our own. We can't get to the point of rejoicing when all that is is going on in our hearts and in our lives. But we need to let that lead us to rejoicing. We need to rejoice as a people. So don't let the lingering suffering steal from you the ability to rejoice because you have been saved. Don't let the news steal from you the ability to rejoice that God has brought you salvation. God God isn't trying to ignore what's happened to you. He he isn't saying the very present and real difficulty that you're experiencing right now doesn't matter. God doesn't ask you to ignore what is going on around you, to ignore injustice, to turn the suffering off of those around you, to turn, turn off what you feel as you go through difficulty. It doesn't mean that. It means that in Christ, we are much more capable and we are much more powerful than we understand. In Christ and in Christ alone, we are able to weep and rejoice at the same time. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 12. He says, rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. I've always taken that as a fairly straightforward command. As situations come up, I just need to be ready to respond by saying, man, I'm so sorry or I'm so excited for you. Just very straightforward. But there's nothing straightforward about that command. There's nothing straightforward or simple about that. We know how complex life is. And for many of us, we have experienced this before and we will experience it again. We will have people in our lives that are simultaneously, there are people hurting and there are others rejoicing. And so we have to be able to not just force it out, but we have to be ready to do both of those things at the same time. If you hear that a, that a friend has lost a baby through miscarriage, you are hurting and grieving for them, weeping for them. But the same day you hear that a friend that has been trying to get pre- pre- pregnant for months and it finally happened, you are now called to rejoice with them and for them, but you don't stop weeping and hurting for that other friend. When someone gives their life to Christ and surrenders and trusts in Jesus, someone you have been praying for and hoping for for years, that God would take hold of their heart and they they, they surrender to Christ, then you rejoice. You are overjoyed. And yet you could hear the same week of someone close to you, a friend being overtaken by sin, forsaking the truth and turning away from God. You don't stop rejoicing over the friend who turned and trusted in Christ. One doesn't overrule the other. You do begin to weep and plead with the friend who is choosing their sin over Christ, but you rejoice because a sinner has turned to God. God strengthens you and gives you the grace that you need to do both at the same time. This is why Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he's commending his ministry and he describes himself as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We live in a sinful world and because of that, there will always be something that makes us experience sorrow and suffering. But for those that have been saved by the grace of God, that is something that brings you unending joy forever and ever. The salvation that God has brought to us brings us unending joy forever and ever. 
And so David rejoices in his salvation, and now he determines that he will sing the Lord's praise. He is going to use his mouth and his words to praise God. David has been questioning God. He's been crying out to him to change things, and now he is going to praise him. And I think there's something important here as we consider this psalm, as we consider where we're at as, as a people. When we are hurting and when we are angry, even when we are rightfully hurting and angry, we often hurt others with our words. We often take that time. We are very prone to hurt others with our words. It is all too easy for our venting and complaining to God to become venom and wrath towards others around us. We hurt people close to us. Families do this to one another, unfortunately. Friends do this to one another. Churches do this to one another. Lament teaches us how to use our words well, even in the midst of the most difficult. Even in the midst of our suffering, we don't just let our words loose to destroy people around us. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Just one example, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 8. We're told, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It is in these moments that our words often feel the most reckless. They take control of us, and they just go around hurting whoever. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. That is always our hope and our desire. Psalm Chapter 64, verse 3, David talks about the mob of workers of iniquity. He says they sharpen their tongues like swords and they aim their bitter words like arrows. There's so much damage when we let loose our mouths and our tongues in this way. That doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. It doesn't mean that we don't talk to people about what we're feeling What it means is that for those who are led by the Spirit of God, those who have been saved from the depths of eternal separation from God, should never use their words in that way. And just because we come to church and sing praises to God doesn't mean that you are using your words the way that God intends. We can look at the end of this psalm and say, yes, okay, I'm going to come and praise God. But it doesn't mean that we're using our words in the way that God intends us to. Many of you are familiar with a long passage on the tongue in the book of James chapter 3. We won't look at it at all, but it says this. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless or praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It says a little earlier in James chapter 3 verse 6, the tongue is a fire. The tongue can set on fire the entire course of life. We see each and every day in our homes, at, at work, in our relationships, on Twitter, how the tongue can set on fire the world around us. It can destroy relationships It can create divisions. It can tear to pieces people who are made in the likeness of God. And so if you're coming and saying, yes, I want to praise God, but I also want to tear down and curse and destroy my brothers and sisters. Brothers, it ought not to be so. We should all take 
heed here. <clears throat> we, we have all seen the damage that this can do. But just in case you're thinking, yes, I know exactly who needs to hear this. I know all those other people need to hear this. James says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. And in verse 8, he emphasizes, no human being can tame the tongue. So let us never be self-righteous. Our tongue is unfortunately always ready and prepared to tear down others. Our tongue is always very close to wrecking someone's day or month or year. We use our words too often to build ourselves up and tear down others. Apart from God, no one can tame the tongue. It ought not to be this way. It is a gracious gift of God to be able to use words and use them to speak truth. It is a gracious gift of God to have control over our tongues, to be able to use them in a way that honors God, to build up brothers and sisters, to proclaim the gospel. And to praise God because he has been so good to us. As David reminds us in this last verse. In Psalm 13 verse 6. He says, the Lord has been good to me. What is the answer? Just, just different leaders, better friends, better family. People who have more self-control. What we need is for each and every one of our hearts to be so completely captured by what David says here. The Lord has been good to me. The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. Literally what these last words mean. So I will sing a song because the Lord has freely given me so much more than I deserve, so much more than I need. Do we believe that? If so, then, then we will remember that he is in control even when our nation looks like it's out of control. We will have hope even when our circumstances feel so hopeless. We were without hope. We were completely lost in our sin. We were enemies of God. And that same God who created heaven and earth and sustains all things has freely given us so much more than we deserve and so much more than we even need. When you see that and that doesn't leave your sight, when that stays in front of your eyes and your heart at all times, then you will never want to curse your brothers and sisters. You don't want to tear them down, but you want to build up. You don't want to make much of yourself. You want to proclaim God and his goodness with every single word that you speak. Every single word that ever comes out of your mouth, that should be your desire. What brings David out of his despair? It is not that everything finally works out the way he wants it to. We aren't told at the end of this psalm that everything worked out great, and so now I can trust in you. What brings him to this place of trusting in God is remembering and knowing that the Lord has been good to me. God has brought me salvation. We hold tight to the truth. We hold tight to what is good. We hold tight to the truth that God is good that God loves us, and that there is nothing he won't do for his people. And he has shown that perfectly in sending his son into this world so that we could know him. He gave his son, and his son willingly went to the cross and died and was raised again. And now we have hope. He willingly did that so that we could know him. So why would we question if he wants to do anything else that is good for us? If there's any good that he will withhold from us. We hold tight to those truths, and that will give us the patience and endurance and strength to wait for God. 
to endure for God, to believe in God, even when it feels like it's been so long, even when we feel like how much longer are we going to have to wait, because we know that he cannot fail. We wait hopefully and confidently because he will not fail. I encourage you, if, uh, if you are going through this right now, if this is heavy on your hearts, take it to God, cry out, keep crying out, and remember that he is a very present help. And then share it with someone this week. Share it with your community. Share it with friends that you trust. Share it with family. David wrote this as a congregational song, a song that was meant to be sung together. We need to lament together. We need to weep and cry together. We are called to weep together. We need others. We need people in our lives who will cry with us, who will cry out with us. Don't think you have to do this alone. I don't, I don't know when it will stop. I don't know when the word pandemic won't be on our minds. I don't know when things in your life will change for the better, but I know ultimately that it will. I know that those who have mourned on this earth will be comforted. I know that God will wipe away every tear. And when he does, when he wipes away that last tear, we will all see Jesus. We will all see our Savior who has saved us, kept us, held us, been right beside us, been with us, and loved us day in and day out, never stopped loving us, never stopped keeping us. For all those years, however long they go on, and into eternity, and that is worthy of our trust and our praise. Be encouraged by the words of Christ. This is at the very end of the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 22. People are wondering how long. Jesus says to them, behold, I am coming soon. He says it three times. Behold, I am coming soon. And yes, I am coming soon. We wonder how long. It feels so long. Suffering feels long. But Jesus is here with us. He is present with us. He is keeping us. And he is coming soon. How long, O oh Lord, how long? The one who has conquered sin and death and saved his people, is coming soon. And so we should reply the same way they do in verse 20. The next to last verse in the entire Bible says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. We should long for that day. We should hope for that day. We should invite that day. We should call out for that day. We should know and confidently say, yes, come, because you are coming soon. I believe that. And so let's take confidence in that and let that move us. Let's walk in light of that. Let's, let's move confidently with that, not just dismissing suffering, not dismissing injustice, but confidently knowing that Jesus cares for us, he loves us, and he is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, help us we are a needy and helpless people. We are in need of you for everything in our life, for every breath that we breathe. 
Remind us of how much you have given us. Remind us of how much you are doing for us. When there are things that seem like they are out of control, remind us of how much you have done for us, how good you have been to us. Remind us of your great and wonderful deeds. Help us to set our minds on on you and how you have worked in our lives, in the lives of your people. Father, truly you are holy and great. There is no one like you. There is nowhere else to turn. We have no one in heaven apart from you. So, Father, truly make us turn to you today. You hold us. You have redeemed us. So strengthen us now. Strengthen your people. Remind us of your great works and your great love in the midst of dark, difficult times. Remind us of those things and let that lead us back to trusting in you. Let us lead that, let, let that lead us to praise you, to persevere through difficult times, to strengthen us, to give ourselves for the sake of those who are hurting and lost. Even in the midst of feeling suffering, we are always rejoicing because of you, because of your goodness. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.